when we talk about stronger credits, we're talking about students who have an unpaid balance that they owe an institution. Um, and because of that balance, they can't re-enroll um, and they can't access their transcripts to either transfer um, or potentially use them for uh, employment-related reasons. Welcome to Focus, a podcast dedicated to the business of higher education. I'm your host, Heather Richmond, and we will be exploring the challenges and opportunities facing today's higher learning institutions. Hi, James. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to chat with you today. Today, we're here to talk about stranded credits and the importance of addressing them. But first, can you give our listeners an overview of your background and experience with research in the higher ed financial space? Uh, sure. Um, so my name is James Ward. I'm a senior researcher at Ithaca SNR. Um, I have been working in higher ed for uh, you know a bit over a decade at this point uh, in various capacities. So I've worked in institutional research, um, consulting and advisory work. Uh, I've also done research at NACUBO, uh, the National Association of College and University Business Officers. Yeah. Um, I have a PhD in higher education policy, uh, and I've been with Ithaca SNR for the past three years, uh, leading research on higher education finance and policy uh, issues, uh, as well as uh, teaching higher education finance um, in the EDD program at National Lewis University. That's great. So you know a lot then about all the financial elements, especially stranded credits. <laughs> yes, I'm excited to chat about uh, the, the exciting issue of stranded credits and unpaid balances. Yes. Well, before we get too far in, just for anybody who maybe is is questioning what we're talking about, can you maybe just give an overview of you know what we mean when we talk about stranded credits? Sure. So um, when we talk about stranded credits, we're talking about students who have an unpaid balance that they owe an institution. Um, and because of that balance, they can't re-enroll um, and they can't access their transcripts to either transfer um, or potentially use them for uh, employment-related reasons. So uh, we're kind of referring to those credits as being stranded um, as a result of those unpaid balances. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And I know that uh, Ithaca SNR has published really a lot of research on this topic, and you're one of the authors. So can you maybe expand on, you know, really what led to this initiative? And what is the current state of the stranded credits, according to your research? Sure. So this issue has uh, certainly been around for a long time and, and has been growing in the attention being paid to it over the uh, past few years, I would say. Um, and about three years ago, uh, my colleagues and I at SNR, uh, we started uh, trying to find some answers to how big of a problem is this? Uh, what is this really the scope of the issue um, here? And uh, there just wasn't a lot of information out there. So um, we started down a path of doing some initial scoping research. Um, and we partnered with uh, some other organizations to try to get as much data as possible since they're really, uh, is, this is not something that's um, captured by the Department of Education. And right. a lot of institutions don't um, necessarily have detailed data on this issue. Um, so thinking about the where the state of stranded credits is now, uh, we're looking, our estimates from our initial report were indicating about 6.6 million students across the country might be in this situation, okay. and their unpaid debts may be more than $15 billion. Um, so this is really a substantial problem, both for students and institutions, and we think something uh, worth uh, addressing and, and trying to solve. Yeah, that's very significant, as, as a matter of fact. And so are you seeing yet in the data, is there a certain type of population of students that this is really impacting? So our research uh, shows that this issue is definitely more prevalent 
um, at colleges that are serving uh, disproportionate numbers of historically underserved students. Mm -hmm. um, so we're talking about institutions that are really enrolling um, some students who are already disadvantaged coming into school and then who are potentially ending up in this situation, which is just compounding that disadvantage. Um, we also see the issue kind of broadly affecting um, higher ed and, and really touching on all sectors um, and all institution types. Yeah, I was wondering about that, too, just kind of thinking about types of institutions that that deal with this more. Is it sounds like it's really kind of across the board? It is. Um, so we know that, you know, schools that are serving uh, low, lower income students and minority students are uh, uh, impacted more greatly. Um, but we also know, um, you know, that this is affecting community college students, um, students at private research universities at public comprehensive colleges, it's really uh, a pervasive issue. Um, and, it, and it differs across uh, both the sectors as well as, um, you know, across different states. Um, so this is really a national national problem, but a problem that there's a lot of variation in. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And when we think about, you know, what some of those unpaid balances are to create these training credits, like, you know, what are we talking here in, in regards to the cost per student and, and really the source of where the debt's coming from? Sure. Um, so the cost per student, um, like I said, it's, it's going to vary. So at community colleges, um, you know, it's probably the, the largest sector that we see this problem. And, and we estimate over 3 million students at community colleges may have stranded credits, but their average balance is actually much lower than the national average. And, and it's only about $630 from our estimates. Um, whereas on the, the flip side, you have small private institutions uh, where the average balance may be uh, as high as $5,700, um, but it's affecting fewer than 500,000 students. So, um, you know, the, the way the problem uh, manifests across these different types of institutions is really important. Um, and, and part of that is also because of the way students end up in these situations. So um, you kind of have three main groups, I would say, okay. of students. Um, you have uh, you have students who have enrolled um, and kind of leave right away, um, and these are students you know where college may simply have not been uh, the right choice for them, or or their plans have changed, whatever it may be. But um, they were only in school for a short amount of time. Then you have students who are progressing through their degree normally. Uh, but something happens, and that really just sets them off course financially, right. um, and leaves them uh, with this unpaid balance. Uh, which becomes uh, a problem that derails their studies. Um, and then you have students who make it to the end and, um, you know, they may only have a few credits left or they may have actually completed all their requirements but couldn't pay that last bill and now they can't access their transcripts when they're trying to get a job or something like that. Yeah, so it becomes a pretty big impact uh, being able to kind of tie up those loose ends, I guess, right? <laughs> exactly. And so I guess beyond, you know, really getting the transcript, are there some other, you know, negative impacts from a student's perspective um, or even institutions? And and what are some of the, you know, how are you seeing this being addressed? So for institutions, um, not receiving uh, the payment is the obvious issue for them. You know, that's a loss of revenue, um, whether it's tuition or room and board, um, and, and that's dollars that uh, they're relying on in order to, uh, you know, meet their operational expenses. Yeah. Um, Resolving these debts uh, is really important, not only for recouping those those dollars, but also if they can re-enroll students, that's future tuition revenue for these institutions. Um, from the student perspective, um, you know, the unpaid debts can really follow them 
uh, in a lot of different ways. So certainly preventing them from re-enrolling, um, preventing them from transferring potentially, mm-hmm. um, from getting a job, uh, which would help to repay the debt. So it's a bit tautological in that sense. Um, but then you also have the kind of longer term financial impacts of this potentially ending up on their credit score um, and impacting them through collections agencies. Uh, which is really uh, problematic from their long-term outcomes. Um, so if we can solve the problem for them, you know, we can help them both uh, educationally and get uh, get back into school and earn their credential, uh, but also help them uh, in their longer-term life outcomes. Yeah, and I know I we talked to a lot of business officers, and and they certainly it's last you know resort to have to go to a collection agency. They really want their students to be able to kind of get off on the right foot and not have to get off on the right foot with with debt and being called by collection agencies, right? So I think being able to solve, you know, for these stranded credits is is definitely a goal across the board. So have you identified any solutions to help really address uh, the stranded credits? Uh, So there are uh, three solutions that are kind of out there right now. Okay. Um, One, we have policy bans that have been going into effect across states that are um, stopping the practice of withholding transcripts. So California and Washington are um, two of the first states that did that. There are also recent bills that have passed in Colorado, New York, and Maine. Um, so this is certainly a trend that we see uh, growing across states. Um, and we think that you know these bills are helping students in, because they're able to get their transcripts. However, it's only solving half, half the problem. Mm-hmm. So um, these students may be able to access their transcripts, but they still have this unpaid balance um, and that debt can still follow them around. Um, and another solution that we've come across are gap loans. Um, so basically, uh, private organizations, usually nonprofit organizations, who are providing um, these loans for students to pay off their unpaid balance and then you know, get back into the classroom and, and complete. Um, you know, this is certainly helping students, but these have all been uh, very small operations thus far. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, they're saddling students with additional debt, uh, which is something, you know, we should really think about uh, carefully uh, whether or not that's the right uh, option here. And also, um, when thinking about the students who are disproportionately impacted by this, you know, lower income students, is more debt really the, the best solution for them? Um, and then the third uh, approach that we've seen are these debt forgiveness programs. Um, and these are mostly single institution programs um, where colleges are forgiving these unpaid balances uh, and then letting students kind of re-enroll um, to pay off uh, those debts over time, or the debts are forgiven over time, I should say, okay. um, and then be able to continue their credential and, and colleges get all that additional tuition revenue from that re-enrollment. Yeah, it almost seems like this is a perfect opportunity to offer some special payment plans. So instead of outsourcing to a third party, really having the institution set up a, you know, a payment plan for that student or the, for the certain situation. So I'm just kind of curious. I just thought about that. Have you seen payment plans or special maybe like gap payment plans versus the gap loans come into play? Uh, you know, we haven't seen a ton of that. Um, I do think that that is another potential solution, uh, assuming, um, you know, that, that those additional payments don't put students in a situation where they have an unpaid balance in the next term because of those additional expenses that they may not have been expecting. Um, but, but I think it's certainly uh, another strategy institutions 
might be able to use in order to alleviate the, the debt problem that students are facing. Yeah, I, I know I, I, some of our schools do that. And I was just thinking this could be something to really help, especially with some of those smaller ticket items, I'll say, or the smaller balances that can maybe be spread out over the next, you know, four to six months and be, get that paid off and, and clear. But uh, yeah, it's really interesting. And then I, and it sounds like too, then the, the flip side of that is really just looking at, hey, do we need to do some debt forgiveness? And so have there been some different approaches you've seen in terms of the debt forgiveness you, you talked about? Yeah. So we've seen kind of two approaches so far. So um, one is uh, the more recent approach of using um, federal COVID relief dollars uh, for debt forgiveness. So um, as part of um, the HER fund, um, institutions are able to use that to pay off um, students' unpaid balances. Um, we've done a little bit of research trying to collect some, some information about these programs at Ithaca. Um, and, we've, and we've found that, uh, you know, they, they may be very effective uh, in the near term, but it's unclear if, uh, you know, without the continued investment from the federal government, if these programs are going to persist mm-hmm. uh, because yeah. most colleges likely don't have that, that fund funding in their budget. Um, the other uh, kind of debt forgiveness programs are these more longstanding programs that we've seen. I think the Warrior Way Back program at Wayne State is probably the most well-known version of this. Um, and these programs, you know, from the conversations we've had, appear to be really successful. Um, there's usually some sort of cap on how much can be uh, forgiven through these programs, and um, students have to kind of persist in their re-enrollment to receive that forgiveness. Um, but it appears to have been uh, a really effective way of getting students back into the classroom. Yeah, it sounds like it's it's a really good um, alternative. And it sounds like that you, you know, have seen some success. Are you able to kind of, is there data to support that yet on some of the success of these programs? Yeah, I think um, there is certainly some anecdotal evidence that these are successful at getting students back in. Um, you know, one thing that we are working on at Ithaca uh, to try to maximize the impact of these types of solutions is uh, this new um, Ohio compact uh, that we just recently launched. So uh, it's a collection of eight institutions in Northeast Ohio, um, four community colleges and four public four years. Um, and essentially we're setting up a system uh, of debt forgiveness across all of the institutions. So students um, who owe a balance to one of these uh, colleges will be able to re-enroll in any of the eight partner institutions, um, and then uh, their debts will be forgiven if they enroll, um, you know, over a certain number of terms, uh, depending on how how much was unpaid. Um, and then at the college level, um, you know, colleges will kind of cross subsidize the debt uh, depending on where students owed and where they end up enrolling. Um, and we think this approach kind of takes some of the the best ideas from the solutions that are out there and really tries to solve both the transcript withholding uh, problem as well as the debt problem. Um, and and by setting up incentives um, for kind of both sets of colleges as well as the students, we think that this is going to be a really effective way of getting more students back into the classroom and pursuing their credentials. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so kind of starting there in Ohio, are you seeing uh, kind of in the next place this may go, or is this more of a let's see how this works and get some other uh, kind of states to buy in? Sure. So we we made the announcement about the the Ohio Compact um, in December, and we are launching it this 
spring slash summer. Um, so we will be uh, hopefully, um, you know, enrolling students this fall in this, and we'll be evaluating the effects of this uh, as we go along, um, you know, in order to improve the, the compact um, as time goes on. Uh, but we certainly see this as uh, a model that could work in a lot of different jurisdictions. So whether it is at the state level, um, whether it is amongst full systems uh, of public institutions, um, or even uh, consortiums of private public mixes um, that are geographically bound. Uh, we, we think that this is a promising model that we are hoping to implement uh, in, in a lot of other places. Yeah, that sounds great. And so I'm just kind of curious if people are listening and going, hmm, that might make sense. Uh, yeah, I'm part of the consortium or I'm part of a group. Is that something they would just, you know, reach out to uh, Ithaca SNR about or what would be the process for that? Absolutely. They are more than welcome to reach out to me and, and I can certainly get the ball rolling on connecting them to folks. Um, and, and, you know, we've got plenty of resources on the issue of stranded credits on the website as well. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great. Well, I know, you know, obviously you being a researcher, you love data uh, and we all love data. Um, but a, around some of these topics are really sometimes seems to be a lack of data. Um, but maybe again, if schools start to think about programs like like this that you just talked about, you know, what should they be thinking about uh, in terms of types of data that would really help, you know, identify the scope of the problem they may have on campus with stranded credits and then also those solutions? Do you kind of have some guidelines? Sure. Um, so I think, you know, first of all, just understanding what the policies are on campus is really important. Um, you know, we know from our research uh, with some of our partners that uh, like 95% of institutions are putting transcript holds on um on, on students uh, for unpaid balances, and uh, about 64% of them are for balances as low as $25. So we're talking about some pretty small outstanding balances that could be uh, derailing students or, or certainly getting in the way of um, both students and institutions uh, functioning correctly, right? Yeah. So understanding the institutional policies is really important in documenting them, uh, as well as the state policies, because as we're seeing um, these these different um, uh, bills pass across states and, and changes to what is allowed and, and what is expected, uh, it's really important to understand the context that the college is operating in. Um, and then it's also really a great first step is for colleges to really start just collecting data on who has unpaid balances, how much they owe, when the balances are popping up, right? Uh, in our research, we found a lot of colleges couldn't provide that information, um, and and that's uh, a potential roadblock that that seems pretty solvable, right? right. Like if colleges are just more time collecting this data, they may be able to start proactively addressing this problem on campus. Um, and then the third thing is really thinking about um, why students are ending up in this situation in the first place. Yeah. So we know that students um, are ending up because of, you know, some sort of um, unexpected loss of financial aid or support from family uh, that prevents them from paying their full bill. Uh, we know some students are ending up in this situation uh, because of unexpected fees or fines uh, that they simply can't afford. Um, and then we have other students who are ending up in this situation because they may have decided to withdraw, but um, under return to Title IV policies, uh, colleges have to give the money back to the federal government, and then the student owes an un, a balance to the institution that they weren't expecting to pay. So, um, you know, colleges should 
probably spend a bit more time understanding what is happening in students' lives uh, that's causing them to end up in the situation in the first place. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And, and kind of thinking about the the types of balances, like you said, you really have like a whole tuition balance or maybe you have some parking fines that you didn't pay and there's just a single hold code. So if you're only looking at the hold code, you may not be able to differentiate, you know, what's that line. So I was just thinking, I don't know if you've talked to any schools where maybe they have a different hold code that's like based upon dollar amount or would that be a suggestion to to maybe see, let's tackle these low dollar, uh, you know, balances differently than the higher dollar. I don't know. What, what do you think about that? Sure. You know, I think I think definitely approaching uh, the dollar amount differently is probably a, a really good idea, right? A student who owes fifty dollars is likely very different than a student who owes five thousand dollars, right? Um, and for them are going to be very different. Um, our, our colleagues at a crow, actually, the the Registrars Association, mm -hmm. um, they've done uh, some recent research into hold codes, and they found that a lot of institutions have hundreds of different codes right. that they're using. For holds and uh, dozens of offices across campuses can put these holds on. So um, I think certainly probably consolidating those into a more manageable number um, and a more useful number that uh, or a more useful set of codes that really tells individuals what is happening uh, is probably another helpful first step. Yeah, I think that really that really is a good a good tip. And um, you know, kind of thinking about the withdrawal, uh, we we certainly have seen an increase from for medical reasons and have it be from mental health or you taking care of family. And uh, it's interesting, uh, you know, kind of how that works. Do you have any insight on on institutions who, you know, provide like a tuition protection program? Um, do they seem to have um, lower stranded credits or have, do you have enough data on that yet? You know, we, we don't have data on that. Um, the one thing I will say, you know, I think the students who uh, are ending up who have to withdraw and are ending up with unpaid balances um, are also students who are already disadvantaged to start with right. uh, for the, a lot of times, um, which means they may not have even had, um, you know, the funds available to join a tuition protection program in the first place. Um, so I think uh, that kind of really just goes back to the point of shedding more light on why students are ending up in this situation and which students are. So we can be very proactive and tailor solutions to be meeting those needs. Yeah, I think I think you're right on that, too. And, and again, I know a lot of our schools we talk to, um, they're really just looking for ways to help those students resolve holes. I don't think anybody likes having stranded credits. And the goal um, is, yes, to, to collect um, the debt from a revenue perspective, but more importantly, just to be able to get students back in school and to graduate, right? That's the most important step. Exactly. Stranded credits really is a, a lose-lose situation um, across the board. You know, students are, are harmed. Institutions aren't actively looking to, to be in that situation. Um, and then from a broader perspective, you know, we're not going to be able to meet uh, attainment goals that we've set uh, at the state and national level if, if we can um, help students get through uh, and earn a credential. So, um, you know, any way we can proactively address this problem and really solve this issue, uh, I think it's going to be beneficial for everyone. Yes, I agree with that. Well, anything, any other insights that you have from your research or anything on this topic that you want to share with our audience before we close out today? No, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm really glad to be here and, and chatting with you about the topic. I think it's really important. Um, and I would just encourage uh, everyone to start uh, t having conversations on their campus about this. 
Um, you know, I think it's, there's been a lot of press coverage recently on the issue, and we've certainly been releasing uh, as much research as we can uh, over here at Ithaca. Um, but we'd love to see more folks talking about this issue uh, and really starting to elevate it to make sure that we are proactively addressing it. Yeah, I agree. I think any time that they can you know, build a business case and back it with data is, is the best way to go about doing that. So I assume uh, all your research is available uh, on your website for, for folks to be able to go and, and uh, download? Yes, it's all available on Ithaca SNR's website. Um, that's Ithaca with a K. Well, James, thanks so much for talking with me today. It really has been great to learn more about stranded credits, even more than we already knew, and the steps that you know really we can take to better understand that issue. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Focus. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date on the business of higher education. For more information, check us out at touchnet.com.